1 Corinthians chapter number 13, I think is where we're going to, I think that's where we're going to start off tonight. I can't guarantee it. Yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, we've just kind of been in between series. Usually I'll do a, a study through a, a book or we'll stick with a topic or something like that. And when we finished our last series, we've been in it for quite a while uh, tracing through the Old Testament and looking at what the Old Testament had to say about salvation. And after we got done with that, we've just kind of been uh, in between different things. And there's been a few things that the Lord just brought to my, my mind and my heart through throughout the weeks and different things. And so uh, with that, uh, we have looked at, what was it, a couple weeks ago, we looked at what our motivation was for serving the Lord. And a lot of people are motivated by fear or they feel as if they're indebted to God. And so God expects them or uh, it, somehow there's pressure toward that, that they have to serve him out of debt. Or there's some that serve him out of greed, expecting that uh, everything that they do, that God is going to uh, return that to them. And so they're, they're treating God like a vending machine. I'm going to do this so God will bless me, so God will do this for me. Uh, but we saw throughout all of that, the, the right motivation, the real motivation for us should be love. The uh, Bible says we love him because he first loved us. It tells us that the love of Christ constraineth us. It, it is what guides us, what draws us to actually serve him by love. And uh, if we're serving him out of love, then gratitude's going to come along with that. The, the, it's going to be a... Uh, not a type of bondage or grievous, but instead it's going to be a relationship, going to be a walk with Him. And that's what we desire. Uh, last week what we were looking at was having balance in the Christian life. And that kind of stemmed from the thought that uh, whenever we realize maybe our uh, motive is wrong, maybe we're serving God for the wrong reason, a lot of times people have the, uh, the tendency to overcorrect. And so rather than serve God for the wrong reason, they just quit serving God altogether and say, well, if I don't have to fear him, if I'm not indebted to him, then why even bother? And uh, that led us to a conversation about several different things in our life where we can become imbalanced in our Christian life. And uh, I believe that uh, that's one of the, the key things that Satan uses to make us ineffective is to get us so focused on one thing that we don't do other things. And we'll focus on one thing at the exclusion of something else. We tend to get, uh, maybe I can even say hyper-focused about certain things. There'll be one doctrine, and while it might be a true doctrine or a good doctrine, we will focus on it at the expense of everything else. There'll be one area in our life that we focus on, we get everything hammered out and going really good here, but we ignore other areas. And so there's imbalance in our lives. And uh, I've used oftentimes... The analogy of two ditches is you're going down the road, there's a ditch on either side, and Satan doesn't care which one you get drug off into, just as long as you get off the right path. And so that's what he tries to do for us uh, in our Christian life, is get us focused on the wrong things, get us imbalanced, get us uh, majoring on one thing or another thing, rather than uh, putting the proper uh, attention, the proper regard to all things in our lives. And so anyway, that's what we've been looking at. And so today what we're going to be looking at is one of these areas that we are very imbalanced in. Okay, I say we as a general sense. I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily anyone individually here. But 
just as mankind, I can say, not even necessarily Christians, but as mankind, we become very imbalanced in. And you notice I've, tur- I've had you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, and uh, some of you might already realize that this is known as the love chapter, right? The love chapter. And so this area of imbalance is love. We have a wrong view of what biblical love is, what love actually means. One of the reasons why this subject has been on my mind, one of the reasons it came up, is that this past month, the month of June, is known as what in the world? Pride Pride Month, right? What is one of the most common phrases that they utter amongst the LGBTQ community? Love is love. Love is love. Right? Love is love. And so the idea behind that love is love thing is it's basically saying it doesn't matter who you love, what you love, how you go about it, that you have no control over, right? And so the idea behind this love is love movement. It is trying to get a completely wrong or highlighting a completely wrong view of what love actually is. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that it makes it a very perverted view, a very selfish view, but it's not just between, it's not just within the LGBTQ plus whatever movement, but it is throughout all of our culture, all of our society, and that is one of the things that have paved the way for movements such as this because we don't understand what love actually is. We've had a false picture, a false perception of what love is, and it's been portrayed in television and movies in everything within society to where we're so messed up on our perception of what love is that whenever they come to us with these ideas and these mantras about love is love, we don't really know how to respond to it. And that brings us back to the whole idea of unbalanced, right? Because there are some within the Christian uh, community that says, well, we're supposed to love them. And so that love equates to acceptance, right? I've seen people who claim to be Christian that say that God or that the Bible endorses those lifestyles and that those movements, right? And I'm not meaning for this to go into a political realm, okay? But this is helping us to understand as we're navigating this day to day. But there are some people who go to this idea that, okay, well, if we are supposed to love and if God is love and if God loves them, then we have to uh, accept their lifestyle. We have to accept what they believe and what they're teaching and what they're promoting. And we have to, in a way, we have to endorse it. And that's not what love is, okay? Uh, just for instance, I'm getting slightly ahead of myself, but I love my children. It doesn't mean that I endorse everything that they do. They come up with some dumb ideas sometimes, okay? And I have to tell them, this is not good for you. This is not beneficial for you. If my kid wants to go up and stick a coat hanger into an electrical socket, oh, I love them, so I don't want to hinder their creativity. I don't want to tell them no, it's going No, if I love them, then I have to be aware of the things that are harmful to them. And my love is going to move me to warn them to try to prevent things that are harmful to them, right? And so one of the most dangerous things that we can do is in the name of love, endorse harmful things and approve of harmful things, saying that we love someone. Just as an example, the Bible says that if if a parent spares the rod, they what? No. If they spare the rod, they hate the sun. See, society has 
has dumbed that down a little bit. They have dulled the edge of that a little bit. Oh, spare the rod, spoil the child. That's what everybody thinks, right? But it says if we spare the rod, we hate the son. What does that mean? Well, it's not saying that you go and beat them with a rod. It's meaning you have to discipline your child. If you don't discipline your child and you allow them to do whatever their flesh desires, whatever they are led to do of their own will and their own emotions, then it is damaging to that child and it is going to destroy their life. And the only way that you're going to sign on to that and say, okay, I'm going to allow my child to do whatever they want and live whatever kind of lifestyle they want and allow their flesh and their heart to lead them, the only way you're going to do that is if you don't care about that child. If you hate that child, then yeah, let them do their own thing because it will ruin their life. They're going to end up having no boundaries. They're going to end up having no standards. And one of these days, whenever they're older, they're going to have no fear of any consequences of any law or any authority. And chances are they're going to go, even if they miss jail, They're going to go from failure to failure to failure because they have not received the discipline and the structure that they needed in their formative years. And so essentially what you have done is you have damned them to a life of failure because you refused to do the very basest idea of uh, parenting, of disciplining. And so it says, spare the rod, hate the son. Okay? And so that carries out into every area of love, and I've kind of went way ahead of myself in this, okay? But anyway, uh, this is the idea behind all of this, that if we love someone, if we love our children, if we love our spouse, if we love our friends, if we love our neighbors, then our love should have a desire to see them successful, safe, secure, prospering, right? And then whenever we have the abilities, we should be doing what we can to assist in that, right? And so that is the nature of love. But let me ask you this. I want to get you guys involved for a minute. What is society's version of love? What is it that society preaches that love is? Acceptance. Okay, acceptance. Tolerance, right? It's the concept of free love. Okay. So free love, no strings attached, no, no responsibility, right? Okay? No judgment. No judgment. Just let me do my thing. Let me do whatever I want. If you love me, you wouldn't care. Well, if you love someone, you do care, right? Right. Or, you know, you see something and you know that it doesn't it doesn't carry the same meaning that we understand as love. But we don't challenge the person who is just using it. Yeah, that very word mm-hmm. to to follow something which is quite wrong, mm-hmm. you know. And we don't have the love, we don't love them enough to challenge them. Okay. But then you know we can be we can be more interested in our relationship with them being according to their mm-hmm. desires rather than according to our base desires. You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to rock. And so that comes back to the the thing, if you spare the rod, you hate the sun, right? And, that, and that's actually talking about child raising and whatnot. But it carries over into other things because it says that a failure for you to do something that falls within your responsibility. It's not my responsibility to go out and confront everybody in this world. 
Yeah. Right? But in the areas where you have relationships with people, if you just kind of go with the flow and just let everything slide and you never actually confront someone. For instance, if you were friends with someone your entire life and you never share the gospel with them, never confront them about their eternal soul, do you actually love that person? Because how can you claim that you love that person and not even try to prevent their eternal soul from going to hell? Right? And so people say, well, that's hateful, that's bigoted. No, that's one of the most loving things that you can do. Because if you truly believe what you say that you believe, if you truly believe that the Word of God is right, that heaven is real, that hell is real, that there is a judgment where every man's going to give an account, and that Jesus Christ died for whosoever, then I need to be going and telling people, hey, Jesus loves you, we're sinners, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, and because of our sins, we're doomed to a devil's hell. And so Jesus has made a way for you to have eternal life, and I've trusted him as my Savior, and I want to see you in heaven one of these days. So would you please consider the gospel, share the gospel with him, and say this is what Jesus did, so that you can have eternal life. That's one of the most loving things you can do. You say, well, that's judgmental. No, we're not condemning the condemnation has already been passed. The judgment's already been met. We are all sinners. And so one of the most loving things we can do is share the gospel, right? And so this is already confronting the idea of what love is in this world. So um, uh, I interrupted again, didn't I? Okay. So we're talking about what is the world's version of love? How do they see love? Okay. So freedom, they think, in what ways is there freedom whenever they're looking at love? Okay. So freedom of consequence. Freedom to choose, they say. Right? And this, that attitude is an expression of contempt for what the Bible clearly teaches. And that's the reason why we have to challenge that as we hear that. We need to challenge it and say, well, yeah, that's not what my Bible says. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I wonder when I hear them speaking like that, why do they think Jesus went to the cross and mm-hmm. gave up his life? Yeah. I mean, if, if there's nothing wrong with what they do, or there's nothing wrong with any sin, so long as they're done in love, mm-hmm. they have this love thing. Mm-hmm. Well, then, well, then, you know, uh, we're all wrong. Everybody who believes is wrong. You know, because we're... You're right. The word they use is judgmental. Oh, oh you ju- you're being judgmental. Mm-hmm. No, no, you're being you're being loving in the mm-hmm. truest way. You're telling them that look, that way is the is the way to destruction. Yeah. It's the way to hell. Here's a here's a way that Jesus chose to give us. Well, and here's one of the things that we have an issue with as Christians. Okay, is yes, the loving thing is to tell the truth, right? But the Bible also tells us that we are to speak the truth in love. And all too often we as Christians are harsh and judgmental in the way that we come across. And I believe that a relationship is necessary in which you truly actually care about that person and they know that you care about them so that you can speak the truth in love. And marching at a pride rally or going out and telling you know all the passersby on the street that you're a sinner and you're going to hell and there is no love behind that mixed in with the truth, then it's going to cause there to be a resistance to that. There's going to be pushback yeah. because there isn't a relationship. The truth isn't being 
presented with life, right? Okay. Now, if we take this outside of the whole LGBT mindset, okay, and all thinking on that, that's not the only area where they're talking about love. What about our idea of love in regards to family, in regards to marriage, in regards to friendship? How does society look at that? Do they have a biblical view of love in that regard? Okay. Okay, so it's a it's a very selfish form of love. And so in society's version of love, it is it's about what makes me happy, it's what brings me pleasure. As long as I enjoy it, as long as I like it, then I'm going to love that person. And that person's thinking the same toward me. As long as they're getting out of me what they want, then they love me. But as soon as their expectations, their wants, their needs, their desires are no longer being fulfilled, then, well, we have fallen out of love. The spark is no longer there. And if it's a marriage, then the divorce is over. If it's a friendship, they part ways, right? And this is society's version of it, and it's extremely selfish view of what love is, okay? If I would just say simply that I love my wife because of all of the things that she does for me. I, if I said I marry her so I have someone to cook and someone to clean and someone to take care of the kids and someone to do all these different things for me, if I say that that's why I love her and why I married her, you'd say you're an awful person, right? Because I'm not actually loving her, I'm using her. But is that not the typical way that society views love. Even many Christians today view love based on what do I stand to receive from it? And it's a very selfish type of love, isn't it? And I venture to say that it's not love at all. Whenever it is one-sided, whenever it's only in view of what I can receive. Okay? One of the reasons I think that this comes about, we'll get to the Bible in just a minute, okay? promise you. But one of the reasons why I believe that this comes about is there are different meanings to the word love. And we're fairly familiar with that in our culture. Uh, One word can have various meanings, right? And so I have uh, several things that I love, okay? Uh, I might love a good juicy T-bone steak, okay? Uh, I love vehicles. I've always been a car nut. I've always enjoyed this. I, I... I've talked with other people. I don't know how many cars I've owned in my lifetime. It's over 30. But anyway, this has always been something that I like. I work on them, different things like that. And so I love that, right? My wife loves ice cream. That's no secret. Everybody knows my wife loves ice cream. And Melody has caught that love as well. She loves ice cream. Okay? And so in that regard, what does love mean? It means that I receive a benefit from this. This is something that I enjoy. This is something that uh, I derive pleasure from. And so therefore I love it. But this is an object or this is an idea that I love. There is nothing that uh, it benefits or it loses by my love. It's something that is completely a selfish love, right? It's one-sided, completely one-sided because that's not a person. It's an object or an idea. You know, I, I might I might love the beach. And the beach doesn't really care one way or the other if I love it. It doesn't benefit anything from my love. And if I decide next week that I hate it, then it hasn't lost anything, right? Yeah. 
And so it is a selfish love that we have there. But what ends up happening is that selfish love carries over into relationships. This is what we were talking about there a minute ago, is I love this person because of the benefits that I receive from them. And now that person is no longer a beach or a bowl of ice cream, but is a living, breathing human being that was made in the image of God. And now there is an effect of the way that I treat that person or my thoughts toward them, my ideas toward them. And so then there is an issue that comes about, right? And so one type of love is the selfish love that should be reserved only for objects and ideas, right? But then I believe there is a, um, excuse me, I believe there's also another kind of love. And I have, okay, here we go. I believe it is a selfless love, okay? A selfless love. Uh, I know I said we're going to start off in 1 Corinthians, but I won't go ahead and quote Mark chapter number 12. Uh, verse number 30 tells us, and this is the story where the man comes to Jesus and asks him what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus tells him the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And that is another kind of love. But anyway, then the next verse Jesus says, and the second one is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Okay. The golden rule. That's what Jesus said, right? Treat them as you would like to be treated by others, right? Okay, so that's a good good rule of thumb, as they say, to go by. But what does it actually look like as it plays out? Because we can look at that and say, well, that's kind of heavy. Because if you look at that passage, what he is saying, he goes onward, and I'm not sure if it's this one or a parallel passage, uh, but the guy willing to justify himself says, then who is my neighbor? And so Jesus gives the story of the Good Samaritan. And he's saying, okay, the Good Samaritan was taking care of someone who even hated him, someone who didn't even know him, right? And he asked him at the end of it, well, who then is his neighbor? Okay. And so the idea in our, in our lives here, if we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, who then is our neighbor? Anyone we come in contact with. Okay? It's the passers-by on the street. It's the people who live around the block from you. It's the, uh, the different people who you meet whenever you're at the grocery store. It's the, the cashier at the till, right? All of these people that we come in contact with is our neighbor. And Jesus says that we are to love them as ourselves, And so just simply put, the way it means to love them as ourselves is to desire for them the same things that we desire for ourselves, right? I desire my life to go well. I desire my health. I desire my success. I desire to avoid difficulties. I desire to avoid uh, great stresses and hardships and all these things. I desire for a good life, right? And so if I desire that for myself, if I love the neighbor as I love myself, then for each person I come in contact with, I should wish for their health, for their prosperity, for their successes, for them to be able to avoid difficulties and hardships and pain, right? And that is the definition of loving them as yourself is that you are wanting nothing but good for the people around you. And then whenever you see them going through difficulty, you're not, well, I'm glad it's not me. It's, um, I hate it's them. I hate that they're going through this. 
and we empathize, we sympathize with those people. And whenever we have the opportunity, whenever we have the ability, we do what we can to help and to relieve those which we come in contact with, right? Wouldn't that be a good definition of loving your neighbor as yourself? And really, that should just be considered being a good, decent human being. And so what does Jesus tell us to be whenever it comes to this idea of loving our neighbors as ourselves? We need to be aware of how we're treating people and desire their good, desire their well-being, desire things to go well for them, because it is all too common for us to get it fixated, to get our eyes so much on self. And this is why I call this selfless love. We put ourselves out of the picture, and I just look at them. I'm just paying attention to them, and I wish them well. I want things to go well for them. But in our society, it is too common for us to laugh at the misfortunes of others, at mocking other people's pain, at having no sympathy, having no empathy, at not seeking to help, not seeking to do anything to relieve the pain and the hurt of those that we come in contact with. Jesus went about doing good. Whenever he came around and saw uh, issues going on, we find that he was moved. Sometimes he was moved to prayer or to, to tears. Sometimes he was moved to prayer and to action. But he, whenever he came and he, he looked upon the, the rich young ruler, he loved him, right? Had compassion on him. And we see these things going on. It doesn't mean that if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're constantly going around and our entire lives are spent uh, catering to the needs of everybody around us to where we're not able to even take care of our own needs or provide for our own family, but instead we are seeking to do what we can to be a help and a blessing to those around us, desiring for their successes, desiring for things to go well for them, and checking our heart, our motives, our attitudes toward those who are around us because it is all too easy for us to enter in with a judgmental gaze at the people that we come in contact with. And whenever it's talking about loving our neighbors as ourselves, that's not just the ones who uh, act like us or believe like us or see the world the same way as we do. That's political opponents. That's people who live uh, lifestyles that we are not okay with. That's people who are doing things that we don't approve of and that are completely against Scripture. They are still our neighbors, and we are to seek uh, their good. We are to love them as ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we approve of everything they do, that we endorse it, that we cheer it on, because oftentimes those things can be detrimental to them. And so whenever we see them living contrary to Scripture, it doesn't mean if we are loving them as ourselves that we're approving it and cheering them on, but that we are praying for them and we are seeking their good. And whenever possible, we speak the truth to them in love, we are available, we are caring toward them, we are compassionate toward them, that even though they know that we may not agree with the lifestyle they live, they know that we care about them as a person. I thought, uh, yeah. uh, I thought that perhaps one of the best biblical uh, pictures of that is uh, where we have the woman who had been caught in sin. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody was ready to stone her. They were just waiting up for the best songs they could find so that they could throw them at her and kill her. Mm -hmm. And Jesus dealt with that in a loving way. He mm -hmm. said, first of all, he challenged them about their hearts. Were, were mm -hmm. they pure of yeah. heart? Had they never sinned? Let him who has not sinned cast mm -hmm. for a stone. And of course, nobody could cast a stone in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. But... His love for the woman 
didn't extend to approving of what she had done because he did say for go where you where you uh, accuse her of it they've all gone well you can go too but go in peace but sin sin not. no more sin yeah. no more yeah so so you know it wasn't that he was charging her a cost he was just saying don't do that because it offends mm -hmm. me it offends everybody yeah it actually offends yourself yes but don't do it anymore. Right. And it's and a lovely illustration, I thought, yeah. of, of, you know, right. being firm, mm -hmm. but yet... Well, and that's a great point, what you say there as well, that it's not just a sin against God, it's a sin against themselves as well. Yeah. Because one of the... God doesn't just arbitrarily give commandments because He feels like it, because He can. But the very commandments that He gives, the very uh, things in Scripture that He prohibits, yeah. He does it out of love for us because the things that He prohibits are detrimental and hurtful to us. Yeah. And so that's one of the things, go and sin no more. He tells her, uh, yes, you're sinning against God, but you're also harming yourself. Look at the condition you got yourself into. But also I, I love the example that you brought out there because as all of those men were just chomping at the bit to kill this woman, yeah. it called their motives to, to, to view as well because they were enjoying this process of killing this woman because they felt as if they were righteous, that they were holy, and she was wicked, and she was sinful. And Jesus calls them to a question here. He says, what about you? Are you as holy and as pure as you are making yourselves out to be? And so their motives were, we are enjoying the destruction of a human being who was made in the image and likeness of God, rather than seeking to help her in her calamity, help her in the issues that she's in to get right with God, we just want to kill her. And even whenever God did put in the law that those who were committing adultery and things should be stoned, we find that God has uh, no pleasure whatsoever in the death of the wicked. That God doesn't do that in order for uh, them to get what they deserve but it was to put iniquity out of the camp. It was for the preservation of the rest of the people. And if they were taking care of it in that way, it would prevent it from being widespread. Now, the Jews have been very cavalier, very are very uh, wishy-washy in their enforcement of it, and sin was pretty widespread amongst the people, and they were selective in how they enforced the rules, right? And whenever it came time that they were able to use it for their advantage, yeah. they loved it. That's how they killed Jesus, right? Yeah. But whenever it worked against their advantage, oh, they sleep it under the rug. Yeah, in fact, they, they, they were doing these things, they thought, mm -hmm. in the name of God. Yes. This, this execution was going to take place in the name of God. Well, Jesus made it very clear to them. No, it's not what God desires of love. Mm -hmm. And love is the, the real sort of, the, the, the undertone of the whole thing is, that's not love. Right, killing somebody is not love. Yeah, it's not love, and it's not love towards God, certainly. Mm -hmm. And so it was all—it was all a show of pride and self-love. Yeah, really. Yeah. Okay, so there is, uh, there is a selfish love. There is a selfless love. There is a sacrificial love. And John chapter number fifteen and verse thirteen says, "Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends." Yeah. And so as we're looking at this, we can kind of see it as uh, 
maybe different steps, different levels, or maybe even a spectrum of love. Because in our lives, there's going to be different levels of love for different people. Uh, whenever it says, love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about that. Or love your enemies. Love your enemies, which yeah. are your neighbors again, right? Yeah. And so even with that, love your enemies. It says that if you see your, uh, your enemy's animal uh, going astray or in a ditch, I think it was in a ditch, that you aren't supposed to uh, leave it there and be glad that misfortune happened to your enemy, but instead you are supposed to take your time and your effort to help your enemy in his misfortune. And so that goes back to the idea of loving your neighbors yourself, even if your enemy is your, or even if your neighbor is your enemy, right? But there's going to be other layers of love because, okay, well, I love the the stranger on the street. I don't want to see any misfortune happen to him. I love the neighbor down the road, uh, the shop owner, the, the person at the till. I'm going to have a love for them as a human being desiring for their lives to go well. Okay? But then I'm going to have family. I'm going to have friends. I have church family, different people that I'm going to love even greater in a different way. And this is really where we need to get to as far as a, a biblical kind of love. Okay? So we see a love for all humanity, kind of a neutral uh, a selfless love. But whenever we look at this greater love, it is a sacrificial love. It is the idea that I take myself out of the picture and that I, I elevate other people above myself. Okay? So whenever he says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends, obviously Jesus is the best picture of it. And he didn't just lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies as well. And so he was willing to die for the entire world. And then we see here that he tells his disciples, he, he doesn't raise them up to the same standard as himself. Okay. But he says, greater love hath no man than this. And so this is the greatest love that we find. And it is a sacrificial love. And this is what he is desiring in these greater relationships. And I believe this is going to be close friends. This is going to be family. This is going to be uh parents for their children, and that should be a natural love, okay? We don't find the Bible telling us too much about it. There's not a command to love our children, I don't think. I may be wrong, but I don't think there's a command for that because for the most part, you don't need that. It's like the first time you lay eyes on them, it's there. Now, I did talk about Father's Day a couple weeks ago that there are some people who are without natural affection, who they can uh, murder their unborn children, they can murder their born children. They can disown their adult children, all these different things. That's without natural affection. That's like, okay, God placed that in you, and somehow you were able to uh, short-circuit that programming that you have in you, and you're actually able to hate your own children, okay? But anyway, one of the, the areas that this is most highlighted in is in a marriage relationship, the relationship between husbands and wives, okay? And we looked at this just a little while ago that, in today's culture, today's society, there's the idea that boy meets girl, she's pretty, he's handsome, I have fun wherever I'm with them, I enjoy spending time with them, and so they make me feel this way. We see this illustrated in movies, we see it illustrated, I pick on Disney all the time, right? We see this illustrated in Disney. You know, Cinderella goes to the ball, she dances with the guy for like 30 minutes, 
He doesn't even know her name. He can't recognize her by face. So he goes around trying to shoe on every woman in the entire kingdom, trying to find this woman because of infatuation. Right? You look at the little mermaid. Fish girl sees the prince. He's handsome. He's different than what she's used to. And she becomes infatuated with him. They've never even had a conversation yet. Okay? Now, at one point in time, no. No, they never had a conversation yet. He doesn't know she exists. Okay? But what is the quote that she says? Anyone who's... I've got three daughters. I've got four daughters, but three of them watch Disney. Okay? But whenever the father finds out about it, and he's painted out almost like a villain... Whenever the father finds out about the 16-year-old girl says, but daddy, I love him. And she has never even talked to him yet. She's half fish. He's a man. But daddy, I love him. And this is the way that it's painted to us in society because it's the way it makes us feel. It's the pleasure we derive from it. It's the butterflies in our stomach. Okay? And so two people come together and they say, I love her. He loves me because of these feelings that we have, these emotions, because of the fun times we spend together. And then they get married. The honeymoon's over. There's jobs to work. There's bills to pay. There's dirty laundry and houses to clean. The kids come along. And now there's late night feedings. There's dirty diapers. There's all these things that are going on. And for some reason, that feeling's no longer there. That excitement and that fun is left. So now the spark has went out. They fell out of love the same way they fell in love. And then, like I said, that's where the divorce comes in, right? And so this is the world's idea that somehow you have no control over love that you fall into it, that love just happens, that you have no way that you can uh, define what love is, what love is not, or control how you go about falling in love. And I've said this before, love is not a mud hole. You don't fall into it, okay? But this is the world's philosophy. And so it's this rush of emotions, it's all these feelings, and they equate that with love, but that's infatuation. That is something that is fleeting and you build a relationship on that it is selfish i'm i love them because the way they make me feel because of they make me feel special they make me feel valued until life happens and then whenever life happens i just don't love them anymore we fell out of love we've drifted apart because they've built their relationship on the wrong thing and it was all about what i can get out of it and i'm no longer getting out of it it's, it's basically uh, you had two people who had two buckets and they were bailing the same well until it went dry. And whenever the well went dry, then they have to move on and find a new well. And this is society's view of, we wonder why divorce is so rampant. Not only that, whenever someone gets divorced, how does that end up turning out? Do they end up being friends after they're divorced? Oh, we enjoyed our time together, but we kind of drifted apart. Well, most of the time, it's hostility. It's bitterness. It's hatred toward one another. Why? Unmet expectations. I married you because I wanted to continue feeling special. I wanted to continue feeling the benefits. I wanted to continue going through all of these things. And you failed me. So now I'm mad at you. 
and it goes from both sides. This is the world's view of love, and it has been forced on us and forced down our throats for generations, and we wonder why it doesn't work. We have left the biblical view. We have left what the Bible says about it. And I know I'm using husbands and wives as the example, but it's in any relationship when we start looking at love from a selfish perspective, whenever we go back to what I was saying in the beginning, the way we start loving people the way we were meant to love things, there is going to always be a problem. And we even looked at the whole idea of loving your neighbor. It was a selfless love. You took self out of the picture. You were focused on that person. You desired good for that person, right? But now this is a sacrificial love where you are able to say, I am willing to pay the price for their blessings and for their benefits. Okay. Now in a marriage relationship, it starts out with the, the Disney type love, the infatuation, whatnot. I'm attracted to them. You don't want to marry an ugly person, right? And I mean, everybody else in the world might think that they're ugly, but you shouldn't. But you don't want to marry an ugly person. You don't want to marry someone that you don't enjoy being around. And so I enjoy being around them. I enjoy spending time with them. But here's the thing. Now I need to start building a relationship with them. And so you get to know that person. You start spending time with them. And you realize, now this is someone who I want to build a life with. And so you make a choice, a decision. And this is what goes in the face of all of society because they say love isn't a choice. Love is love. Love is something you fall into. It's something that you have. You can't help who you love. Have you ever heard that? But the Bible gives us commands to love, right? It commands us love our neighbor, to love God. In Ephesians chapter number five, verses 25, it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That is a command to love. And so if you can be commanded to love, that means it is volitional. It is a choice that you make, right? We find that it is highlighted whenever it says that uh, God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, okay? He commendeth, he shows forth his love for us. He demonstrates his love for us by his actions. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So now we're seeing the selfless nature of love, that if love is commended to us, that in while we were yet sinners, if it's manifest, shown to us, that while we're undeserving, we're unworthy, it's not based on what we have done or what he receives from us, but because of who he is and what he thinks of us, he loves us so much that he's willing to die for us, even though we don't deserve it. That God was willing, because of his love for us, to send his only begotten son to die for us so that we don't perish but have everlasting life. We see how love is being highlighted, this sacrificial love that we're seeing in Jesus. Now, relating that to what I just read there a minute ago, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That is something that is grossly missing in relationships, in marriages, in society today, because it's not based on I enjoy being with them. I get things from this relationship and I'm going to stick in it as long as it suits me. It's no, I have made a commitment. I've made a decision that I started out with this person and I decided this is the one 
to whom I want to demonstrate, to whom I want to show the love of Christ. And so for the rest of my life, I am willing to put myself aside for the good of that other person. I'm willing to put myself aside for what they need, what they desire, for what they like. And so as I'm looking at my wife, then I have the decision to make again and again each day to set myself aside and say, what is best for her? What is it that she needs? How can I be a servant to her? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus came to this earth not to be ministered to, but to be a minister, to be a servant, and to give his life ransom for many, right? And so as we are to be like Christ in our relationships, we put ourselves on the back burner and we say, okay, I'm going to look at what that person needs. I'm going to look at that person and see what they're lacking, how I can be a blessing, how I can make their life easier, how I can make them feel wanted and loved and valued and appreciated. And I'm going to do those things, even if it means that I'm going to do without a few things, even if it means that I'm going to have to uh, give up a few things, I'm going to see to their needs before my own. And when a marriage works out the very best or a friendship works out the very best, a relationship works out the very best, is whenever both people have that same relationship with each other. And so in my marriage, if I am looking out for what's best for her, and she's looking out for what's best for me, we can have a healthy marriage. That's another reason why we find in Scripture that it says that we're not to be uh, unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? We're going to have different desires. We're going to have different thoughts on these kind of things. We're going to have different uh, things that are driving us, different motivations behind our actions. But whenever we come back to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about this, we find that Jesus is our ultimate example, that in our relationships, it's not about us. It's about that other person. If we are living as Christ did, Christ didn't live for himself. He lived for others, right? And this is a strange concept to us because our fear comes in where if I do this, then I am going to be uh, mistreated. I'm going to be taken advantage of. I'm going to be harmed. My needs are going to be left unmet. I'm going to be used up and dried up and all these things. But instead, if we are servants one to another, if we have love one to another, and that's why it's very important that there is a relationship that exists where society says you come together to have your needs met, your wishes met. You come together and you start sleeping together and you're uh, using one another to fulfill your wants, your desires, your needs. And it becomes very selfish, self-centered. And what can I take? And you never actually love that person. You never actually have a desire for their health and their good. You never actually get to know that person because all you're trying to do is take as much as you can from that. That's what society preaches, right? But God's version of this is for people to have a relationship built on valuing one another, built on trusting one another, built on the principles of the word of God, right? And whenever you have that going on, there isn't this taking advantage one of another, but instead we benefit and bless one another. And so I've, I know I've used uh, marriage as one of the, the main uh, illustrations of this, but it goes in other relationships as well. Whenever I'm parenting my children, I'm looking at my children, what is best for my kids? 
I'm willing to do without. I'm willing to put myself through hardships and difficulties to make sure my kids are taken care of. Does that mean that I'm giving them the latest and the greatest of everything that I'm draining myself financially? No, because usually that's not good for them, right? And so I have to make tough decisions. And I look at my children and say, what do I have to do? Maybe I'm going to have to make some hard decisions and put some things off limits. And I'm going to have to take a stand on things. I'm going to have to make them mad once in a while because it's what's good for them. And sometimes I have to be the bad guy to be the good guy because I love them, right? You see how it goes? Friendships, same thing, right? And so if we're going to be having good biblical love amongst friends, it is looking out for that other person. It is seeking to, the Bible tells us that we're to edify one another. We're to exhort one another. This is building each other up. This is pushing them to a more godly place. We are seeking their health. We're seeking their well-being. And sometimes it is at our expense, right? That's a good point because there's been plenty of people, their kid didn't go the way they wanted them to, and so they disown them or they mistreat them or they abuse them because of this. But what we see in this is that with love, that we are still seeking their their good. We are still willing to sacrifice on their behalf. We're not condoning their sin. We're not condoning their bad decisions, but they still know that we love them, respect them, and value them as a human being, and that we are there for them even if the wheels fall off, okay? And so you don't have to, you know, say, okay, yeah, I know that. Well, I don't really agree with this, but I support it. Uh, No, it's not that. Um, I know I had you to turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and so rather than beginning with it, we'll end with it. How about that? So love is a choice, and we choose in love We say, okay, that person, I'm going to commit myself to them. I'm going to invest in them. I'm going to cheer them on. I'm going to uh, try my best to do whatever I can to draw them closer to God, to see them have things work out well in their life, even if sometimes it means I'm the bad guy, even if sometimes it means I'm going to have to make sacrifice. Whatever it is, our love for this person is, is for their good, not for ours. And that's the main thing I'm wanting to get across in this entire lesson, is love is not about me, it is about them. Okay? It's not about me, it's about them. And so the focus comes off of me, it goes on to them. And the closer you become to someone, the greater the love that you have for someone, the more that you're willing to invest, the more that you're willing to lose so that that person may benefit. Okay? So we come to 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. And I'll go ahead and read down through. I think it's verse number seven. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. Now that word charity, it means love. It's a, a little bit more of a meaning of love. It's love demonstrated, love in action. Okay? 
Because if I just say that I love someone, that means nothing. There has to be some acts that go along with it. It's like uh, similar to the idea of faith. If I say that I have faith, but there is nothing that goes along with that faith, then it doesn't mean a lot, right? If you believe something, you're going to respond as a result of what you believe, okay? So though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understandest all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. I'll stop there for just a second. I want to give just a little bit of context for this passage. The Corinthian church was a very carnal church, and they were covetous of spiritual giftings. And so they were using the blessings of God to promote themselves and to uh, harm other people. And so if they had a gifting, they were using that to puff themselves up. They were using that very uncharitably toward one another to promote self at other people's expense. And so this is why he's saying, though I speak with the tongues of angels and men, because you know they had the gift of tongues, not that they were speaking with the tongues of angels, but he's using hyperbole here. He's saying, if I spoke with the most, uh, most, uh, the greatest linguistic abilities, if I was one of the greatest orators that ever lived, but yet I didn't have any love in my life. If I didn't love others, it doesn't matter how well I speak, my words are worthless. And this is one of the things that we talk about whenever we're talking about being a witness to people. And you can tell them the gospel and you can do it without love. And it says then you're become as sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. It's of no value. Verse number two, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And once again, this was hyperbole because most likely if someone had no charity, they wouldn't have these gifts either. Okay. But he says, though I was the most devout religious person, my faith could remove mountains. I understood all scriptures. I knew the word of God inside and out. And I had no love for man or God, then it is worthless. It is useless. Verse 3 talks about bestowing all these goods to feed the poor. They could give everything that they had. They could be the most generous in the eyes of man. And if they had no love, you say, well, if they're being generous, surely they have love, right? Well, look at Ananias and Sapphira, right? Didn't they give a great amount? did it for the wrong reason? How many times do we see, okay, here's something that's big today. You, you see anything on social media and there'll be social media influencers that are going around and helping the homeless with a camera in their face. Giving away all these things. And the Bible says that whenever we do that, we have our reward, right? And so he says, you give everything, you have no love, you aren't profited anything. You have gained nothing from it. And so he is giving these carnal Corinthians who are desiring to uh, uplift themselves, who are being extremely selfish, he says, it's not about you. Unless you start seeing the need to be looking out for the things of others, not for the things of your own self, 
then all that you're doing is completely worthless. You have the wrong motive. Okay? And so we come on down to verse number four. And it starts describing what love does in the heart and the life of the person who has it. Okay? By the way, love is a fruit of the Spirit. We walk with God. We we spend our time in His Word and meditating on the things of God and allowing His Word to act in us. If we're being doers of the Word and not hearers only, and the Holy Spirit is able to bring forth fruit in our lives, love is one of those fruits, okay? And so you want to know how to be more loving? Pursue God. Walk in His Spirit. Then you'll receive the fruits. But anyway, verse number four, Charity suffereth long and is kind, Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, charity never faileth. So we'll stop right there. And so we have a description of how charity, how love manifests itself in our lives. Okay, it can be a checklist for our own lives. It can be a checklist for the things that we're seeing going on around us and see if love is the motivation behind it. See if love is present and uh, a part of the things that we are a part of or the things that we're seeing, okay? So we kind of check even society by it a little bit, this loving and tolerant society that we have, right? And so it tells us in verse number four, it suffereth long. Does that mean that it needs to put out its misery, its suffering? No. But to suffer long, it means that it'll put up with a lot, that it is uh, very patient. It's willing to overlook flaws. It's willing to overlook mistakes, right? The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sin, I believe. Am I right in, that, in quoting that verse? Okay. And so this is the idea behind it, that it is patient. We look at the people around us and they are struggling. They're having problems. They're making mistakes. They may say things to us that are unkind and unloving. And if we have the love of God in our heart, we are willing to overlook that. We're able to be patient with that. I've told my girls from a very early age to help them understand some of the things that's going on around them, that hurting people hurt people. Whenever people are being ugly and mean and cruel to you, it's not so much an indictment against you. It is a testimony to the condition of their own lives, their own souls. They are hurting. They are going through problems. And so that is the reason they're acting the way they are. You realize that, you start being a little bit more patient and a little bit more kind toward that person. A little more empathetic, trying to figure out what's going on in their life and trying to help them out, right? So it is patient. It is kind. Okay, is kind. Uh, a lot of people say that we are to love the sinner and hate the sin. We've all heard that, right? We've all heard. If we love the sinner, we're going to be patient with them. We're going to be kind toward them, even in the areas that we don't agree, even in the places where they don't agree with the Word of God. It doesn't even have to be about us. Whenever they're doing things that are contrary to the Word of God, it doesn't mean we have permission to be an idiot doesn't mean that we have permission to be harmful, hurtful, cruel, unkind. 
And so is patient, is kind. It tells us here that it vaunteth not, or excuse me, it says that it envieth not. There's the one I forgot. It envieth not. It's not jealous. And so if we start kind of thinking through our maybe our own hearts, our own lives, or even society, if we don't want to bring it that close to home, all the ones that claim that they are loving at the same time are insanely jealous. They're fighting for the spotlight. They're not willing to give it up to anyone because they want it toward themselves. It is a selfishness. It is a pride. And we'll get to that as well. Uh, so it is not jealous. It's not boastful or proud. It doesn't bond itself up. It's not puffed up. And so all these three go together. The, the idea of being jealous, of being full of pride, of being uh, boastful. I think that really, it, it describes society today the me first generation. It's all about me. And so if we say, I love this person, but I love this person because of what I receive out of it, then I'm going against what the Bible actually says that love does, right? Uh, verse number five, it says, does not behave itself unseemly. Love is going to change our behavior the way that we act toward people, the way that we act in different circumstances. It's going to change the way we think and that we process. And so love will give us some manners, right? It does not behave itself unseemly. Because why? I'm looking out for that other person. I'm looking out for those who are around me. And so I am behaving myself for their advantage, right? says, seeketh not her own. We kind of covered that one already with the vaunteth not itself and puffed not up. But if our love is a selfish love, if it is only seeking its own, then it's not biblical love, right? No. It's not selfish. It says, it's not easily provoked and thinketh no evil. That means that it's not hasty. It's not rash in the way that it's doing things. Another way of looking at this is the idea of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, temperance, self-control, right? In societal's way of looking at love, their love is very hasty, very rash, very on and off again, right? Very unpredictable. But that's not a biblical love. It's cautious. It's patient. It's not jumping into things. Whenever it says that um, at the end of verse number five, thinketh no evil. The idea of that is that it, it's not suspicious. It's not always looking out for the worst in everybody and everything. We're going to see even more that in verse number seven, that it gives the benefit of the doubt. And I believe those two are linked together. In verse 6, though, it says, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. What is it that the person who is loving like Christ loves, what is it that makes them joyful? What is it that makes them happy? What is it that makes them celebrate is things that are true and things that are good, not in iniquity, not in other people's misfortunes, not in bad things that are going on in the world, 
but instead it rejoices in truth. It rejoices in the things that are good. In verse 7, beareth all things. <clears throat> that means that it forgives. If it bears all things, it goes back to what I said a moment ago about love covers a, a multitude of sin. And so love is going to put up with a lot. Whenever I have love for my wife, that doesn't mean that she is perfect. Whenever she has love for me, it definitely doesn't mean that I'm perfect. But because she loves me, she's going to show grace toward me. She's going to be patient toward me. She's going to put up with a lot. She's going to forgive weaknesses. She's going to forgive failures. She's going to overlook a lot of things in my life because of love. It says it believeth all things. It does not mean it's gullible. Okay? But it's more along the lines of being optimistic. Whenever it believes all, believes all things, it gives the benefit of the doubt. It's looking at it, hoping for, and we're going to see hope in a minute, but hoping for the best case scenario instead of the worst. Rather than always, as I said, being suspicious, as being critical, as being cynical. What is it? Overthinking. That's, that's a very good point. Because in love, I'm not overthinking and thinking about all the bad scenarios and putting the wrong motives on the other person. Instead, I'm assuming the right ones. Okay? You, you ever meet someone who always assumes the worst of someone else? You ever been that person? And you automatically assume the worst? Well, love is going to assume the best. Love is going to defer that judgment and, as I said, be optimistic about it. And so that comes down to the hoping all things. That's the optimi optimism. You look at that person and say, yes, they're struggling, but I'm being optimistic about this. And we're going to make it through this. We're going to keep on going through this. We're going to, it's going to be better. They're going to get victory. They're going to, you know what I mean? And the last thing there in verse number seven says, beareth or endureth all things. It endureth all things. That means that it is able to hold up underneath the load. Yeah. Because just going back to the idea of marriage, whenever you say the marriage vows, it is in sickness and in health, for better or worse, richer and poorer, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live, right? Yeah. Something along the lines of that order, okay? But that's saying, okay, I'm going to endure quite a lot for love. I'm willing to make a choice to go through all of these things, to wade through all this together out of love and allow that love to be what holds us together and what bears us up that holds the weight off of us, right? It endures all things. And so we come down to the very last thing that I saw there in verse number eight. Charity never faileth. And he goes through this whole list of the things that the Corinthians were seeking after to build themselves up. And he says, all these things that you're after, all these things that you think are most important, aren't that important. But if you just love God, love one another, and allow God to work through these things, then God's going to take care of it. And your love is not going to fail you. Okay? Your love's not going to fail you. It's not going to be the wrong choice for you to love other people. 
Now, we've talked about marriage and different things quite a bit in this. This doesn't mean for you to be a doormat. There's other scriptures that deal with that. But there's never a place for us to cease loving people. Okay? And it's not going to be the wrong decision whenever you choose, whenever there's the opportunity to get bitter, to get hateful, to get mad, to get resentful, to instead turn that over to God and choose love instead. Because love is a choice. And it's that choice to seek the good of the other person, whether or not they seek the good for you. Okay? And so the world would have us to think that you have no control over love. God says you do. It's a choice that you make. The world would have us to think that love is all about us and our desires and our ones and our lusts and our needs. But God tells us that love is about the other person and about what's best for them. And as they've got love all out of place, and they think that loving someone means endorsing every decision that they make, no, love is seeking the good in that person. And sometimes that requires you to confront the choices that they're making. Right? But love, as we see here in 1 Corinthians, is a lot different in the way that it presents itself, in the way that we see it on the outward, the way that it's manifest in our lives and our society than what mankind, what the society thinks that love is. So with that, I better wrap up. I'm, I'm out of time. But does anyone have any questions or any comments while we look at this with love? Observation, really, which is that the word and its view of marriage, view of love, mm-hmm. so, is really, for the most part, distorted. Because, I mean, most young couples now getting married, they don't have the same uh, commitment to staying mm-hmm. in the marriage. Like, well, look, yeah, let's. Let's see how we get on. Let's try and Okay, well, that's great. And if we don't love them, we can just both go our own way and we can maybe find another partner. There isn't this sort of... I mean, I'm speaking from experience. Mm-hmm. I have 53 years of marriage yeah. before Kate passed on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and you lived it out. You went till death do us part. And I'm not saying that every year that we were married was, was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Or that we always agreed with everything that we, we, we ever spoke about. Far from it, you know, we had disagreements, but the 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 thing that held it all together, the cement that held it together, was, was love. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a commitment to one another. Yeah, one for the other, and uh, I know you could always. Uh, I mean, people say compromise is weak, but actually, compromise is strong. You're showing strength when you compromise. It depends on what you're compromising. If you're compromising truth, that's one thing. Right. But if you're compromising your pride and your will and your yeah, desires, that's that's what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. So you know, but I, I do. I mean, the people who get. I mean, we now have this country was the first divorce to introduce that as legal entity, mm-hmm. uh, same-sex marriage, mm-hmm. and like 
they are not God's will. Mm -hmm. Man and woman were created to be one. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, this this thing that came up. But they get married now, and they make vows and all mm -hmm. this. But, but they're doing it outside of the mm -hmm. love of first. Our first love should be to God, that's mm -hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, but they, they, I mean, they have they, they have passion, mm -hmm. and they want to indulge that passion mm -hmm. in in. in it's it. Yeah. But in that, they're not all that much different than most other people in society. Yeah. It's what? I said they're not all that much different than other people in society. Because if you... Well, yeah. We'll, we'll demonize homosexuality and same-sex marriage and whatnot, but there's plenty of other people who don't care at all what God oh, thinks yeah, about anything. Of not. course. So, yeah, that's... that's I'm not arguing. About, I'm agreeing. I'm trying to talk about yeah. marriage and love that yeah. binds people together rather mm -hmm. than... Uh, and yeah, yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. I mean, lots of people indulge in all sorts of things, mm -hmm. uh, which are not, you know, uh, would have the approval of any church, much less right. uh, a, a Christian church. Mm -hmm. uh, with, with some respect to the Mormons, who thought it was all right to have seven or eight wives. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, that's, that's something I believe in. But, you know, I think, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, there is this emphasis throughout about you know sort of striving, striving, striving. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's, it's um, not the same striving that we see towards getting through the narrow, the narrow gate, but right. it's the striving that we see to make sure love is is mm -hmm. being shown, right, and and, and being lived, not yeah. just shown, but being lived. Yeah, uh, yeah right. getting outside of ourselves and actually, yeah, yeah, focusing on the other person, yeah. yeah. Uh, I often felt that, you know, if even if, it, if if a couple weren't that, you know, spiritual, that you know, having that read in every marriage sermon, mm -hmm. that particular yeah. piece of scripture, because right. it really does explain it's the best definition of love anyway. Yeah. yeah, whenever the the spotlight gets turned on to self, you've already you've you've missed the boat, so to speak. Okay. But uh, kind of kind of going off of what you were saying there a moment ago, uh, with so many marriages today, I don't think, because you're talking about the commitment that's required, uh, and it's not just marriages, it's all relationships. People are so quick to dissolve them, to cut ties and run, whether it's friendship, whether it's uh, any of these things. Uh, they're so quick to cut ties and run that they actually never have the time to... Uh, invest and truly have a love relationship with anyone because it's as soon as my needs aren't being met, as soon as I'm not getting out of this what I want, I'm leaving. And it's those times of difficulty and working through troubles and tri trials and problems, just even in friendships. Go ahead. Yeah, you just replace it. And so rather than working through the problems, which actually uh, strengthen and build up, you cut ties and run, then you're never going to have that sort of relationship that it could have been. Uh, even in our Christian life, it is the uh, it is a trial of our faith that works patience. It's the afflictions that we go through that build us up in the faith. It's whenever we are tried, we're purified, we come forth as gold. Even the relationships that we have, whenever they're tried, they're tested, you stick through it, you work it out, and you're looking and valuing that other person and saying, okay, I want that person in my life more than I want to win this battle. Yeah. Then you work at it together, yeah. and you go overcome it, you go through it, 
and the relationship, whatever relationship it is, is stronger on the other side because you value that person more than whatever this is that you're working on, whatever the, the hiccup is you come through. And so that's that's more of a, a biblical, a godly perspective on what relationships, what love is. Uh, my final thing that I will leave us with is if love is a choice, okay? If love is a choice, then it's up to us to choose to obey God and to love others regardless of how lovable they actually are, right? And so we choose out of love for God and obedience to his word, we love those even that are unlovable, even those who hate us, even those who are living outside of God's will and God's word, we still choose to love them regardless because it is a choice, right? And so that's going to change how we engage even the unbelievers of this world, if we engage them first and foremost, valuing them as a person made in the image and likeness of God with an eternal soul, a person who God loves, if we see them in that way, it's going to change our attitude, our actions toward them. Rather than being hostile and hateful, we're going to be patient and kind and loving toward them, firm on the truth, firm on our convictions, but speaking that truth in love. Right? Okay. So let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and we'll call it night. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you so much for this time that we've had in your word. And I pray, Lord, that it's been beneficial to, to all that's heard it. I know that uh, all of these things that you've been working in my heart and my mind challenged to me, Lord. There's uh, so many folks that have gotten a a wrong idea, a wrong representation of who you are and who your people are because of those who don't follow your word, those who don't uh, love as you have laid out for us to. And Lord, I just prayed that you'd help us to stand firm on the truth, but help us, Lord, to always do it in love. Lord, not that we ever uh, compromise, not that we ever uh, get wishy-washy in our convictions, but Lord, that our first and foremost conviction is that we love as you love. Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. And Lord, we just pray that you do the needed work in each and every one of our hearts tonight. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And amen. amen.